Hey everyone, welcome to Bridge Stories. This is our new podcast giving people space and time to tell their stories of encountering God and being changed by Him. We hope you're encouraged by these stories and also that you leave excited that you know a lot of really awesome people a little bit better. So sit back and enjoy. Okay, here we go. I'm here with Sam Reeves, and I'm excited that this um, this has just been a um, a prop on this table. This is the first time it's actually being used. Nice. So Cheers. Cheers to black French press coffee. I love it. How are you, Samantha? Good. Thanks for coming. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's crazy how quickly that happened. 2022. I feel like we were just in 2020 at the very beginning trying to figure out, like, man, what, 2020 is a new decade, There's new, and now we're two years into a pandemic. and. Yeah. Here we are. And when we were starting 2020, we didn't know quite what we had ahead of us. And so now it's kind of crazy knowing that we're in 2022. And Hashtag two weeks to, to <laughs> slow the spread. Am I allowed to say that? YouTube's <laughs> going to censor, censor this already. <laughs> well, th- thanks for coming on. I, I feel like we've been uh, friends for quite a while, but I-, I was thinking about inviting you because this is how I experience you oftentimes. I feel like there's like so much depth in you, but I, every time we hang out, I feel like my wife gets all this one-on-one deep conversation with you, you and it. I hear little bits and pieces. Like, here's a good example. We were at your house, I don't know, maybe a year ago now, and just out of my, the side of my ear, I hear, oh, Sam wrote a book. <laughs> I'm like, how did I not know that? So I just decided I, I just wanted some time where I could just talk to you. So, okay. so welcome. Thanks. So I'm just curious, this is how we've been been starting, but um, where'd you grow up? I grew up in the tiny town of Tustin when it was still a tiny town. And now it's not so tiny because the Tustin marketplace came in there and various other things. But I grew up in Tustin and uh, when I was there, it really was like a small town. Because I remember when we would go travel other places and tell people we were from Tustin, people had never even heard of it. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people outside of California, they know Orange County, as long as you're talking about beach cities. Right. As soon as you come like on the east side of a freeway, they have no idea what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, but I feel like cities like Orange, people know because yeah. they're bigger or Irvine, but Tustin was not well known. But now I think more people know it, even outside of maybe traditional Orange County lines. But uh, yeah, anyway, I grew up in Tustin when it was fairly a small community. Yeah. Born, raised, Orange County. Well, I was actually born in Pensacola, Florida. Okay. And then, but I've lived in Orange County since I was, I don't know, two. So I, that's all I've ever known. So I consider myself somebody who was practically born and raised yeah. in Orange do, County. Do you have, you have siblings? I do. I have two older brothers. Two older brothers. How much older? So my, the next up brother is four years older than me, five years older than me. And then the, the, the oldest brother... My oldest brother is, I think, seven years older than me. Is that right? Nine years older than me. Did you go to Tustin or Foothill? I went to Tustin High. Tustin High. Tustin High. It's the mascot. A tiller. I didn't know that. That's the lamest mascot ever. It's not. We tiller. A very robust farmer. Okay. When we would till the land, because at one point Tustin was farmland. Got it. We tilled the soil. I see. We did. Like actual humans, not like robots on wheels. Yeah. So the tiller was like this robust mascot with his overalls, maybe even just one overall because yeah, it's cool. Well, what was like your, your home life like as a as a kid? Mom and dad married or 
divorce? What was what was kind of the? Difference? I always tell people that I had what I would consider to be almost like a textbook perfect childhood. So I had mom, dad, married um, the two older brothers. We always had some animal, usually dog, sometimes birds. Um, we lived in the same house my whole childhood. It was a cute neighborhood. And, and since this was in the uh, previous generation where we were, we spent all of our time playing outside in the neighborhood with kids in the neighborhood. And it was that total stereotypical that we would leave in the morning and we would go play in neighbors' houses. Nobody cared. Everybody just let you come into their house. We would play all day. Somebody would feed us lunch. And then sometime later, toward the end of the day, you just knew to make yourself home before dinner. And that's the kind of ch- all of our um, siblings would do the same. Um, so anyway, I, I talk about it in sort of like a romanticized way, but it really is it really was like a really wonderful childhood in that way. So my two older brothers, we had um, actually right down the street from us, we lived um, on this little street where there was lots of families that all had kids around our same age. So any given Saturday morning, you would see all these kids just like riding their bikes down the street or playing, um, you know, I don't know, all kinds of things together. So it was really, it was really great. And so, yeah, mom, dad married until I was like 13. Oh, okay. And they separated when I was 13. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Everyone has a different experience with that, but I, I got to imagine being 13, that's a, a pretty tough age to go through a parental split. Yeah. I actually, when I... When I was a teacher, you know, I taught child development for a long time, and we would talk about divorce effects on different age ranges. And theoretically, younger children tend to blame themselves, and older children tend to take a side. And my older brothers, my oldest brother, was out of the house when it happened. Okay, because he, well, he was living there, but he was college aged, and and then um, my middle brother was playing baseball, and he was actually a professional baseball player, so he was playing um, in. Florida, I think at the time, but it was one of those things where I think that because I was the only one in the house really all the time that it was maybe, maybe more of a, like a shock, uh, to my older brothers because they weren't there all the time. Mm. But anyway, um, it was, I actually felt like it was the right thing for my parents. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. It was, it was, it felt like the right thing. It, I, they hadn't really been a cohesive unit for a long time. Okay. So I was kind of hopeful that this would bring some kind of peace. And even as a kid, you kind of sensed that, yeah. felt that in yeah. your own way. Yeah. Because we had this, like I said, we had a really great childhood and we, everybody got along really well. And my family was well constructed is what I think. You know, we, my siblings got, we were, we, there's a big enough age gap between us that it's not like we were together all the time, best friends playing together, but we all got along really well. And then, um, my parents got along well. We spent, we had a pool in our backyard. So like our summers were spent always swimming outside and, um, my dad would barbecue. And so we had those kinds of things and those kinds of memories were, were there and abundant and wonderful. Um, but I think like the older you get, the more you can kind of see circumstances for for all their different nuances as opposed to just your the like the your direct experience i'm not sure if that's making sense but so as i got a little older i could kind of see the way my parents relationship and dynamic was actually working as opposed to just oh they're my parents got it yeah so i think as and i've always kind of been my mom always called me a little bit of an old soul so i think i just kind of i 
I think of myself as like an empath too. So I connect to people on a deep way. So I feel, um, I felt as I was growing up the kind of the strain in my parents' marriage a few times. So I think when they finally separated, it felt more of like a relief to me. Was there um, an element of of faith and going to church at at this time or or no? No. So I did not grow up in a house where we went to church on a regular basis. We would, I would, you know, if we were to ask my mom today and if my dad, if he were alive, they would probably say we were Christians. Okay. In fact, I think I remember them saying that we were Christians. And I do remember going to church occasionally, but that was not part of our regular um, experiences. And so um, we, like I had a Bible that I remember somebody giving me, but nobody ever read the Bible to me. We never prayed before meals. Nobody was praying with me before bedtime. Um, we didn't, that wasn't like really part of our, our upbringing. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds very similar to, to my house. My, my parents were f- totally fine. Like, oh, if you want to read a Bible, you can read a Bible. It's yeah. not like we're going to do that, but we're not going to frown down upon it or anything. Like yeah. That. I think they thought we were Christians and, and saying that was enough. Yeah. And the fact that they probably believed in Jesus at the time was enough for them to say we're a Christian family. Sure. But as far as really raising us in that way, no, not at mm-hmm. all. Interesting. So you, you grew up in Tustin. You're a, a tiller. Mm-hmm. Proud tiller. You graduate as a tiller, a proud tiller. Uh, and then what happens after high school graduation for you? So after high school graduation, I was faced with, you know, the big college question, which I was an okay student in school. I think part of the problem was when my parents se- separated, it was 13, 14. Yeah. So, right. It was like right before high school and it was difficult. And so when my mom moved out, I was living with my dad and things were, there's just kind of a mess. And so I, school was a challenge for me, but I also was fairly good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that school was my number one priority, though, because I was just kind of existing and, and, and more social and things. And, but I wasn't a bad student, but I wasn't, I wasn't giving my all. If I, yeah. if I had applied myself a little better, I probably could have done better in school. I was getting A's and B's and C's and, and things in school. Yeah. Um, but so when I was getting ready to go to college, it seemed like everybody knew what they wanted to do and everybody was applying to all these colleges and getting all excited about the SATs. And I felt like I was doing all those things out of obligation, social obligation. This is what you do. But I didn't have that. This is what I want to be when I grow up feeling. I I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up and seemed like everybody else had this confidence of what they wanted to do. And so I finally realized that my, my, and plus financially we weren't in a position, my family wasn't in a position to put me through college anywhere where we could afford to, you know, and I, I wasn't, I didn't have the wherewithal to get scholarships and do all these things. And my family, since it had dissolved at that point, everybody was just kind of doing their thing. So I didn't have a big cheer squad behind me saying, here's, you know, we're going to help you get into this school and figure out ways for you to, you know, get scholarships or whatever. So I ended up going to junior college but not knowing what I wanted to do. Where'd you go? I went to Orange Coast College. It's their mascot. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a, is it a wave. I, think, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Oh, wait, no. Is that Pepperdine? I don't even know. I'm so bad at knowing my, my mascots. What I'm is I'm just giving you a hard time. Don't worry I don't about even it. know what the Orange Coast College mascot is. Sorry for interrupting. Can, somebody will have to tell me. I don't right. know. Write it um, in the comments. Yeah, I, I don't remember. Um, I should remember that. I was actually on their um, 
brochure once too. Oh, is that right? It's on their course catalog, <laughs> running in the sand. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did you track or something? Have, no, but they just asked a bunch of us to be like the face of the catalog that year. So I should know what the mascot is because I literally represented the college one year and I don't know. Uh, that's okay. That's all right. So, um, but yeah, anyway, I went to Orange Coast College not knowing what I wanted to do. And um, I, I was literally in, in and out of my counselor's office every term saying, I think I want to do sports medicine. Oh, I think I want to do uh, writing. I think I want to do, the, I, I changed it all the time. She was like, how about you just take the prereqs, get all your GE out of the way, and we'll see you next. Were you just sort of hoping like you'd throw something against the wall and it would just stick? Yeah, I, I think I was waiting to feel like something was the right fit for me. Almost and, like making a commitment to something might lead to the feeling of this is right. Right. Or, okay. Yeah. It's like, I, I, well, I mean, I wanted to find my place in the world because it seemed like everybody else was so confident in that. Like all yeah. my friends, it seemed like everybody knew what they wanted to be when they grew up and had this great plan and goal for their life. And I was sitting here thinking, I don't, I have no idea what I want to be when I grow up. And am I the only one who's like this? Apparently I'm the only one who's like this. It's such a weird age at like 19 or 20, like at least for me, I finished high school and then all of a sudden I felt like everyone all of a sudden knew exactly how to be an adult and how to get there. And I was like, I, I better buckle up and figure it out. I yeah. have no idea. I still feel like I'm a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a weird, a weird spot. Well, and it's funny because I w would tell this to my students when I would lecture them about brain development. And I would say, you know, you know, what the research tells us is that our brains are literally not fully developed until our mid twenties. And the uh, emerging research is showing that it could be even later than that. But what's really interesting about it is the part of your brain that helps with long-term decision-making mm -hmm. and your ability to kind of understand consequences to behaviors and decisions and actions, your ability to focus well and, and to think sort of in this, this big way, big global way is in the area of your brain, your prefrontal cortex doesn't develop. It's the last part of your brain to develop. Interesting. <laughs> so I always tell my students, we ask you, a society asks you to make all these big decisions about your life before your brain, the part of your brain that's really supposed to do that before it's ever even ready. So it's one of the reasons why people choose careers and relationships and things that later they're kind of like, what was I thinking? Yeah. Because, you know, our, truly we're not really wired for that kind of deep thought quite yet at the times when we're like 16, 17 and 18 yeah. that we're asking students to do or children to do it. So anyway, I think about that. My brain was not ready. I was not. It's all, it's all so fascinating. So, so you're kind of like tipping your cards a little bit. So you go from Orange Coast College, clearly you end up with a background in knowing about psych and brain development. Paint that picture for so, us. So I, when I was at Orange Coast. Like I said, I was kind of just spinning my wheels, yeah. trying to take all my GE, essentially wasting time, but not wasting time. I mean, I suppose I was being productive by taking those general education classes. At that same time, I had gotten a job right out of high school working at a local preschool. And it, it was the preschool was at the church that I was going to. So the backstory of that was that I didn't grow up going to church, but then around junior high, one of my good friends at the time, she invited me to her church. Oh, cool. And it was this United Methodist Church in Tustin. And she, it was really her family and that church that sparked my, my, um, actual knowledge of the Bible. Yeah. Um, and so I, I can credit her and her family for being the one that kind of put me on that path to um, really understanding what my faith was. Uh, so anyway, so that they, that church had a, a preschool at it. And 
that same friend had worked there the summer before we graduated high school. And she was like, oh, it's super fun. You just play with the kids all day, make a little money. I was like, great. So when I graduated high school, since I didn't really have a plan except that I was starting at Orange Coast, whatever that August was, I said, well, I'll, I'll try to work there too and make some money for the, for the summer. So I met the director. She's like, yeah, you come on in. So I started working there thinking it was just going to be a summer job. I ended up staying there for like 13 years. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yeah, and became one of the directors there. And yeah, so it was just one of those those things that it was obviously something that uh, God had for me to stay there and to have that be a significant part of my life. What happened was I was working and while I was going to Orange Coast College, you know, um, I, well, what, what happened was that summer when I was getting ready to leave, the director came to me and she said, you know, you're really good with the kids. So how about you stay even while you're going to college? I'll just work around your schedule. We can be really flexible with you. That way you can make school your priority. But then when you have free time, you can come in and work. And because she was willing to be so flexible, I said, all right, I'll, I'll try it out. You know, why not make a little money while I'm going to school? Sure. So I did, and that's ultimately why I ended up staying so long, because every semester she kept saying, we'll keep working with your schedule, whatever works. We just really want to keep you here. And probably a semester or two into my experiences at Orange Coast College and while I was working, she again pulled me aside and she said, you know, if you take a child development class, I can pay you more money. And I'll pay you, I can't remember what it was, maybe it was like a quarter, I don't remember, but she's like, I'll pay you more for every class you take. And since I was already sort of spinning my wheels, I thought, well, why don't I, I'll just take a class, like, why not? So I, I took a child development class, and I thought, this is really interesting stuff. Yeah. And you learn about how humans began, like, our development as children, like, the way that we think things through, and the way that our, as adults, we make decisions based on things that happened as children, and... So I was like, this is really interesting. So I continued and took all the classes that you could take at Orange Coast College in that field so I could make more money is what I kept telling myself. Well, I'm only doing this to make more money. Um, And what happened along the way is I ended up falling in love with kids and and the experience of education. And but it's funny because during that whole time. If somebody had said, do you want to be a preschool teacher? Do you want to be a teacher? I would have said, no, no way. I've, what, I've got... what, why, why would you have said that? Because I, I just felt like I had bigger and better dreams for myself. Not yeah. that there's anything wrong with that. But for some reason, I just felt for me personally, like, no, no, no. I've got something else. Surely I've got something else that I'm going to do with sure. my life. It's not this. Um, so that's what I was doing for so long. Just taking those classes working more, what ended up happening was I started working more and more. And then the classes started um, tapering off. And then before I knew it, I was just taking one class and I thought, what am I doing? I really don't know what I want to do. And so it had been like five years that I had been at Orange Coast, still not sure what I was going to do. So I ended up coming to my boss and I said, I I can work full time. You know, I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing right now. So I'm just decided I I had enough credits at that point to be considered a full, um, like a fully qualified preschool teacher is what the the terminology is. And so meaning I could be alone in a classroom, I could just be a preschool teacher. And so I, I told her that I was, I was ready and willing to do that if they would, if they wanted me to. And she was happy with that. And so I thought maybe, maybe this is just what I'll do. You know, maybe I won't do anything else because I can't figure out what I want to do beyond this. Um, and so for a long time, probably another three or four years, that's what I did. And I was working and I, I enjoyed it greatly, but I didn't want 
everybody kept telling me, oh, you're so good with the kids. You really should just be a teacher. Go back to school, get your credentials, do the whole thing. And I thought, I just don't want to be a K-12 teacher. I don't, I just didn't feel like the right fit for me. But the, the pressure from people saying, well, this seems like it would be a good fit for you. You're so good with the kids. Why wouldn't you want to do that? And I kept thinking, well, what can I do if I really like kids, but I don't really see myself being a K-12 teacher? And that was what I grappled with for a long time and kind of shelved. And then um, what ultimately happened, I really don't, I don't have like a exact moment that this, like an epiphany that happened, but I, I started asking myself, is there a space for me? Somebody who likes kids, enjoys the process of seeing them grow and develop, but isn't interested in being like a kindergarten through 12th grade teacher. Is there a space? And, and what I discovered was um, that what my, what my love of children really was rooted in was in their relationships with themselves, others, and then their parents. And I thought, I think what I'm really interested in is more like the psychology of kids and mm-hmm. relationships. And, and so then I, that's how I stumbled into psychology as something that I thought might be the right fit for me. And so then I, I thought, well, maybe I could be a child psychologist and maybe that would be the right right avenue for me. So I started looking into it and I decided I would go back to school to pursue that. So I went to Cal State Fullerton. Um, at this point, all of my friends have already graduated. <laughs> they already have their careers. Some of them have bought houses or getting married. And I'm still like, I think I know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I'm a little late to the party, but I think I know now what I want to do. So I went to Cal State Fullerton. I was like the oldest person in my classes, my I was like 24. Yeah. It's so funny. You probably felt like so old. So old. Yeah. So old. So old. But I I was like, okay, I'm ready for this now. So I go to Cal State Fullerton and I get my bachelor's in child and adolescent studies there. And then I did great there. So when I was in high school, remember, I wasn't doing that great in school. I was doing average. and and But then once I was motivated like, I can do this. Well, I did excellent in school there. I was getting all A's, doing really, really well. So I thought, I think I'm a good candidate for grad school. So I put all my eggs in one basket and applied to one school, which was Long Beach in their counseling department. And I thought, I think I'm, I think I'm good. I have a lot of years of experience working because at that point I'd been working for several years. I thought, you know, I can take what I know from working plus, you know, all my years and experiences working with kids plus my education. And I'm sure they'll accept me into their program. And this was now, um, 2007. It was right before the big economy. Oh yeah. So then what happened was we, it went, when everything tanked, everybody was losing their jobs and corporations and businesses were having to cut their departments in not even just in half. I mean, everybody was losing work. So what happened was I got an email back from Cal State or from Long Beach State saying, we're not even going to look at your application. We had to cut our department by 30%, which means we literally have thousands of applications we can't review. Mm. So we're encouraging you. This isn't even a rejection. We're just encouraging you to reapply next year. We can't look at it. And I I was devastated because that was the only place that Mm. I had applied, which Obviously, in hindsight, wasn't the most responsible thing for me, but I was so confident that, you know, it was going to work out. So then I found myself having to take this forced year off when I had finally found this, this motivation. Yeah. To, to move forward where you're going, where your lane is. And it was like shut door. Mm. I I was so bummed and just like, what am I going to do? And 
is this a sign? I don't, I, now I don't know what to do moving forward. And, um, but you know, I, I stayed working where I was and it was, it was good. And, um, I, what ended up happening was I applied to a couple other schools. I ended up getting into Pepperdine, um, for the next year. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, now in hindsight, I know God always has a plan, but I'm so thankful for my experience at Pepperdine because it was a smaller school, a small, mm. smaller program in private yeah. school and much more expensive. But, um, I'm thankful for the experiences I had there yeah. and the, the education that I received there, I think was, was really great. Yeah. So I graduated from Pepperdine with a master's, um, in clinical psych and, and then after that, I decided I was ready to kind of go out into the world, which I guess I should say what's really interesting um, is while I was there, my goal was to be a child psychologist. And so when we were doing our practicum, we were meeting with clients and trying to do therapy. And I realized I'm a terrible therapist because I cry when other people cry. And oh. so and that's not good. Like when you're pouring out your heart to somebody and you're telling them all about this angsty thing that you're going through and your therapist is like, I'm sorry, I just, this is really hard for me. I, I just cannot, I empathize so deeply yeah. with other people that I thought this is not good. I, I can't, it's too hard for me. I take on other people's emotions so strongly that this is not a great career for me. It seemed like it would, but it really was not. So I thought, I don't think I can do this well, at least not at that stage in my life. So I ended up once again feeling really lost. Huh. All of my, um, in my cohort, all my other classmates, they were all getting ready to go to their PhD programs, which was my original goal too. And I felt stuck because I thought, I don't think I should go on to a PhD and spend all this money. And I don't really think that this is the right fit for me mm. anymore. So what do I do? And I ended up quitting. After I graduated, I ended up not applying to a PhD program. And I kept working in various careers and ended up being able to can teach. I, can it. I pause you for a second? Uh, I, I keep thinking this as you're talking. Is um, So you're like 13 or 14 years old. You're introduced to props to the Methodists, right? Mm-hmm. Along all of these ups and downs, uh, you know, throwing stuff at the wall, trying to figure out, like, where's my lane? I don't know where I'm going. And then yeah. feeling like, this is it. I love this. I love where I'm working. And then back to square one. Is there is there a sense in your mind or are there people around you? Are you going to church where you're feeling like God is in this? Are you even pursuing that? Is that even part of your life at that point? So let me back up and tell you then something um, that I think helps to answer some of that and then I think is important anyway. Um, when So when I was a kid, this is part of like my testimony story, which okay. whenever anybody asks me, like, tell me your testimony. Oh, like, I hate that question because I, I feel like I don't really have a great testimony story of like the day that I was saved yeah. and, and it was this deep, profound, big thing. I don't have that story. But in moments like this, I recognize that the story that I do have is really important for, for Sam, you know? But uh, so when I was a kid growing up, like I said before, we did not grow up in a, a house that talked about faith, talked about Jesus, talked about the Bible. We didn't read the Bible together, even though I had one. Um, but for as long as I can remember, I, ha- I, I knew that Jesus was real mm. for as long as I can remember. And I can remember having conversations in my room with who I now know is the Lord, you know, but I didn't wow. really know what I knew back then, but I always felt like this comforting presence. And I always felt like 
there, it's like I knew it. Even like deep in my spirit, I knew what I knew, even though I didn't know hmm. really what it was. I don't know if any of that's making sense. Well, that makes perfect sense. It's yeah. It's like the only way I can really think about it now as an adult is that God was so clearly making his presence known to me as a very young child, even when nobody was talking to me about him. And, and now as an adult, I recognize that so clearly because I would pray in my room, um, to God without having a formal relationship with him. And I wasn't praying like, okay, I'm just going to say these words out loud and hope somebody pays attention to them. It's like, I knew what I was praying and I knew who I was praying to. I, 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 I just knew it. Um, and so throughout my whole life, I've known that Jesus was real. And even before anybody had formally introduced me to like the Bible, I, the Bible that I was given as a child, like I said, nobody was sitting there reading it to me saying, oh, here's some, you know, here's, here's who this person is and, and here's all the great things that he's done and here are all these other people in the, in the Bible. But I would flip through that Bible and just be fascinated by the pages in it. And it was this Bible that had a few illustrated pages. Oh, cool. Because it was a like kid's Bible. And I would, I remember as a child just staring endlessly at these pages and being fascinated by it. And, and now when I think about it, I don't, I don't know. I don't know too many kids that don't spend a ton of time like fascinated by their Bible when they're like five and six years old, you know, but I was fascinated by it, you know, and even, you know, I remember having some conversations with my mom asking some questions, but she didn't know, you know, she wasn't that knowledgeable about the Bible and yeah. things. And, and so she would try to give me her best versions of answers. But I, I think I had a longing deep inside to, of me to know Jesus more but there wasn't anybody, at least not at the time yeah. in my family, who was able to to feed into that. So when I started going to the church, the United Methodist Church, that was the first time I was going regularly hearing sermons on Sundays. And the pastor... His name, you were going to like church, church. Yeah. I was picturing like youth, just, group, like, and youth stuff, group or something. Which I was doing that too. And, and that, was the, that was what got me into going to church with them because okay. I loved it so much. And then I think that God's plan was that my friend would invite me then to come on Sundays with her family. So I started going to church with them fairly regularly and I loved it. And the pastor was, was so relatable in the way he, and, and that church was really formal, um, denominational church, you know, so they had their, their, you know, you sit in the pew and then you take out your hymnal and you read, you know, sing the through the whole, yeah, 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 yeah. But I, there was something about the way that he spoke and taught that even as a young child, I remember feeling really connected to, or I guess a young teen, because I didn't start going there until I was probably 12 or 13, but I just really connected to it. And I thought, wow, this is so great, you know, and, and even though I wasn't reading my Bible, hearing him speak from it and make connections to the world around me, it, everything started to really make sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, all I knew is that I, I, it would confirmed stuff that I already knew, like, well, oh, this Jesus is real. And, and this is, this is great, you know? Um, and then I would say I I was going regularly all through high school, my parents divorce and things really kind of threw me off for a while. Um, not my faith necessarily, but probably my, my regular habits of being able to, to go to church and, um, those kinds of behaviors. But I started going, there was probably a five year period where, where I wasn't going to church fairly regularly, kind of outgrown the, um, is Once this I graduated like your young adult kind of? Yeah. Okay. When I graduated high school, I'd stopped going to the United Methodist Church because like, you know, everybody was at college and mm. like, I'm not going to show up by myself on Sunday, sit in the pew. And so I, um, 
I, I think there's probably a five year gap where I wasn't really going to church. I still felt like I was a, you know, a Christian and I, I was still at the preschool that was at that, um, at that church. And right, okay. I, I was speaking to the kids about Jesus and felt very passionate about what I knew and believed, but I wasn't going to church myself. Okay. And then, um, I'm trying to remember how I found, I started going to, um, Rock Harbor church years, like in my early twenties. Okay. Um, I think a friend had, a, like, I think somebody that I worked with told me about it. And I thought, oh, I'll try another church. I'll, I'll try it you again. You weren't a hip young adult in your young 20s was, if you weren't going to Rock Harbor that at that That is very time. true. <laughs> that is, that was the, that was where you went. Just so, a, a tiny sidebar. I, I went to college all the way in San Diego. There was literally people that were like, let's wake up at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning so we can make it all the way to Orange County to go to this oh church Oh, my gosh. They paint during the service. It was like, yeah. that was like the, what? I went, I'm like, man, this is awesome. Yeah, it's so cool. It is the, yeah, it was that. Yeah, for sure. But I think what was good for me at that time was that that's where I first encountered like the Holy Spirit. Mm. Like I had never had like an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And while I, I so ha- I have this soft spot in my heart for those old hymns. I really do. Yeah. The, the way that they would sing at that, at, at the church that I grew up in was, you know, I don't know, there wasn't a lot of room for Holy Spirit power in the, in the room, you know, not that you can't feel that singing hymns for sure. You can, it's more of like your a heart thing. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, I just wasn't, my heart wasn't in the place to kind of receive that at that time. But then when I was at Rock Harbor, I remember I was there on a Sunday and the, the, the worship was so powerful and I had never experienced anything like that. I mean, I, we had an organ. So, so <laughs> I'm imagining, I if, I, if my timeline's right, this is like pre-YouTube. So do you even know that exists out in the Christian world? Or is this like totally mind-blowing to you? Um, do, do I know that what exists in the so Christian if, world? If you're, you know, you're going to church at a Methodist church, is there somewhere in your young mind where there's a, a church like a rock no. even exists? No, no, okay. no, 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 no. Um, like modern worship music? Yeah. That sounds like rock music. No, none of that. I didn't I didn't have knowledge of any of that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um I think I'd stumbled upon the fish around the time that I <laughs> the radio station around awesome. the same time that I started going to Rock Harbor. I'm like, "Wow, this is great. Listen to this music. <laughs> it sounds so hip and fun." No, I I didn't know. So, like I said, I the church that I grew up in, they had an organ. That's what they used to play their songs, yeah. you know, it, and there was no drums or anything like that at the time. So, this was my first experience and and when I felt like the Holy Spirit presence, I I was that was it for me because I had no idea that that kind of presence and that power could flood over you. I didn't know. And then after that, my whole relationship with Jesus changed because I fell in love with him it, because I didn't know what I, I had no idea it was like that. It's, mm. I had this knowledge of him and I had this relationship that had always been there, yeah. something very reliable and familiar, like an old friend, yeah. but I did not know the depths of like that feeling and the, the, the love that he has for us and the power of the Holy Spirit. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. So that was probably the, the, the turning point for my faith where it was like, wow, mm. now I need to know more. I really need to, to dive into this. Um, and so kind of to circle back to the career thing and, and all of that, it was, um, the timeline was I was, I wasn't at Rock Harbor. I, I think I started going there probably 24, 25. And so I was, um, when I was at Fullerton, 
I, I wasn't there yet. I wasn't quite, quite, um, connected to that church th- just at that point. So I was, um, I would say that I, I was still kind of relying on my old knowledge of Jesus to get me through some of those ups and downs in my, ca- yeah. my career or school. Um, but during the, all the doors shutting, like when I found out that I couldn't go to Long Beach and then again, when I had graduated Pepperdine and then I had nowhere to go, I didn't yeah. know what to do. Those were the, those were the times when I was pretty confident that it was Jesus, you know, telling me, I have a plan for you. I haven't given up on you. Your life might not look the way you thought it was going to look at this point, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's not still worth something, you know, that I have plans for you. And so I was leaning on that a lot during that time of feeling like this is not what I planned for myself, you know, and by the time I graduated from Pepperdine, um, uh, I was 30. And so I, and I thought I was going to be married by then and have children by then in my, in my younger years. That's what I thought. And I wasn't even close to that, you know, and I, I, I was scrambling feeling that I was running out of time for some reason. I didn't have a career. I, I, I just, for a long time, one of the reoccurring themes of my life has always been feeling like I didn't fit in anywhere well. Mm. You know, where do I fit in? Like, I, don't, I'm, I don't fit in anywhere. I don't look like other people, act like other people. I, I, I don't fit in anywhere. And that uh, would kind of come up every once in a while. And then those are the times when I would have to remind myself that I, there is a place where I fit in. And that's, you know, with Jesus. And, and he's got like this plan for me that's so great yeah. that then I can feel confident even when the world looks at me like, what are you doing? Hmm. Why are you still single? Why are you, why don't you have a career? You know, why haven't you done all these great things? Or why aren't you traveling then if you're not doing any, all this stuff and me feeling all this social pressure to do all these things that I, I, I don't know why I didn't have answers for why I wasn't doing those things, but I, I just wasn't yet. I kept thinking, well, God's got to have a plan for me, right? He hasn't forgotten about me, right? You know, it's what you just said, like in the last 30 seconds, I I feel like I've had this conversation with young adults probably 10 times in the last six months. I I think that that's a common feeling for a lot of people, but it's so isolating because you don't want to speak about it. You don't want to be the person who's like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life or I don't feel adequate or I I don't, I feel like I'm behind. Yeah. I I think a lot of people are going to hear that and feel like, oh, there's somebody else who has felt that and turned turned out just fine. Yeah. When I was lecturing my, um, when I was a professor, I would always tell the students on the first day of class, I would ask them, you know, what do you guys want to, what's your current professional goal is what I would say. Yeah. Even if that changes tomorrow, today, right now, what's your current professional goal? All these students would share. Most of them would say something. And then a, I would say probably half of them had an idea. And then half of them would say, I don't really know, but if I have to pick something today, it's fill in the blank. Yeah. And so after they were done, I would say to them, you know, for those of you who are sitting here right now say, thinking, I just said something because my teacher asked me to say something. I really don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. I have no idea. I just want you to know you're in good company because I still feel like I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And here I am, you know, at a, a professor at a university, yeah, and pay, I still feel like I don't know what I want to be. Tell us how you got that because you keep alluding to it. Oh, yeah. Now you're, you're lecturing and you're a professor at a yeah. university. Yeah. So when I, when I graduated um, from Chapman and – or sorry, from, from Pepperdine and I – was like, what am I going to do? Um, I was still at the preschool and then, um, I started kind of looking for other jobs that might make better use of that master's degree, even though now I wasn't going to go on and be a child psychologist. And I started to feel like my master's was a waste because it's like, what do you do with just a master's in psychology? Like if I, if I'm not going to be a child psychologist, then 
what so do we do? Is that a common degree? Like you, it's kind of like a stepping stone to go into yeah. a PhD program. Yeah. Most people don't stop at their okay. master's in psychology. You go on to get your PsyD or your PhD. Okay. Um, and then that's what you use. It's there's not Psy- a PsyD is more kind of clinical PhD is more teaching. Is that? Yeah. So the, 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 um, the PsyD is a, is a, a degree that's more, uh, yeah, like clinical based. And then the research based PhD is slightly different. Um, one's more practicum related and then one's more, uh, research based, but I mean, you can get jobs in the field with either of those degrees, okay. but I, I, you know, didn't do I, any of those things. And so most people would not choose to get a master's in psychology without going on to something else. Yeah. And that wasn't my goal either. My goal was to get the master's and then go on to, right. to the society, which I didn't end up doing. So then I was like, well, here I have this, um, master's and I could have done while I was in school, I could have chosen a master's that would have led to enough clinical training to make me like an MFT like okay. a marriage and family therapist, yeah. but I didn't take that program either because my goal and the classes were slightly different. So I had this other end goal that then I, since I wasn't actually going to fulfill that goal, I felt like I'd missed the boat to be able to do anything else with this degree. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, all that to say, I was kind of scrambling, trying to figure out ways to make use of this degree that I'd spent all this money on and all this time on and now knew, had no idea what to do with it. And so I started working still in the same field, child development, but more um, in uh, more management side of it. So I got a job working at um, a company that's interna- like they're technically international, but they have branches all over the United States where it's um, corporate child care. Um, and so I had this big fancy job where I was traveling all the time and I was overseeing all these child development centers all across you know, um, Orange County and, and Las Vegas and everywhere. And I was I mean, I had a company car and a company credit card and I was traveling all the time everywhere. And, and for all intents and purposes, this was the big fancy job that I thought that I wanted all those years. And, but at that same time I had met the person who is now going to be my husband and he had a little boy at the time. And I started to think differently after, um, I met him. And so here I had this big fancy job and, but I was gone all the time. And then a girlfriend texts me and she teaches at Orange Coast College. Okay. And she said, hey, I get all these emails asking about job listings all the time in, for um, teaching positions. She's like, and I just got one from, from Fullerton. And you know what? You should apply. At the time, that was completely off my radar. I'd never taught college. I'd never taught. I, I said, why would you think of for this? And she said, I think you'd be really good at it. I think you'd really like it too. And if you want, why don't you come guest teach one of my classes? Were you actively kind of looking for a change at that point? No, I was, I mean, I, I wanted, I guess yes and no. I didn't really, I was happy to have the job that I had. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't like desperately trying to find something different, but in my heart I was thinking, oh, I wish I kind of had a job that was a little more local so that I wasn't traveling all the time and okay. gone away from this, this guy that I'm so enamored with now. And we we'll have like cir- a few, we'll yeah, yeah, back we'll get to back that. to that guy later. But, um, so, you know, I, I guess I wasn't really actively looking, but then it was like, this came into my lap basically. So when she told me about it, I said, I don't think, I don't think I should do this, but she asked me to come to teach a class at, with her okay. at Orange Coast. And I did, and I ended up loving it. And she, the students really received me well. And then she was telling me, 
that, you know, she's like, you did a great job. I really, really think that you should look into this. So I, I stayed with her for that whole semester while I, and I reached out to the, the, the people at Cal State Fullerton and, um, like it, it was, my husband and I still laugh about it because the door couldn't have been wider. It, I went in thinking that I was interviewing and the, the, the girl at Cal State Fullerton was like, which classes do you want to teach? Like, oh, blood. we need oh. to right now. <laughs> yeah, she's like, which we have four different classes that we need filled for the for the fall. Which ones do you want? And I was like, what? I don't even know what these classes are. But she she basically gave me the job sight unseen, and then gave, le- I left with a stack of textbooks and three weeks to prepare. And I was like, okay, I can do this. And then the rest was history, and I was there for ten years. And so you know, it was and it was glorious. Um, but to kind of button up that the story about uh, the students on the first day, my teaching tenure, I loved it and, and it was great. And it was, it was what I needed for a long time, even though I didn't think that I was going to be a great teacher. College students were a little different than like fifth graders. Mm. So, um, but when I would tell them on that first day of school about, you know, wh- what you're going to be when you grow up and they would flounder and I would tell them like, I, I'm standing here before you and I still don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. And they would, I felt like that made them feel so comfortable. You know, that was something that they really resonated with because I would tell them, I still feel like there's something else for me yeah. out there in the world. Mm. So now you're teaching at Cal State Fullerton and where are you with, well, I mean, I, your husband goes by many names. I call him Jimmy. Yeah. Some people who are watching will be like, who on earth is Jimmy? I know Earl or I know James. Yes. Uh, what do you call him? I, I call him Babe. Oh, Babe. Okay. Yeah. So tell us about babe, babe and where he enters the story. Yes. So I write. So when I graduated from uh, Pepperdine, I was still working at the preschool and I was single at the time and sort of famously single amongst my peers because everybody was like, why are you still single? You shouldn't still be single. And I, you know, was dating a little bit. There was nobody who... I felt like was the right person for me. And even, even when, um, I was in my twenties, I felt like God, I don't know. I can kind of feel like God's hand in even my, my romantic relationships. Like I, I felt like God had told me about my future spouse. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I, you know, f- but if you feel crazy thinking things like that as a young person. So I, I thought, oh, I, I don't know. You know, I'll just date whoever, you know, whoever I, I, I deem that I feel like interested in dating at the time. I wasn't really thinking long-term marriage, even though I wanted to be married. Um, and so when I, when I was finishing up Cal State, or sorry, when I was finishing up Pepperdine, I was still working, but I was getting ready to move on from that job at the, at the preschool because I just felt like it was time to move on. I've been here for a really long time. I better make good use of this master's degree that I have. So it was probably six months after I'd graduated from, from Pepperdine. In fact, it was almost exactly six months after. And I was getting ready to, to resign from my, my, the job that I'd had and, and go to that corporate job that I, that I ended up getting. And the morning that I woke up on my last day of work, I, and I had been there for a really long time. So that was a significant day for me. So the morning that I woke up from that last day of work, I told God, as I sometimes do, I told God what my plans were. Okay. I said, God, here's the plan for this, this next season If everyone's of my honest, life. They, they do more telling than they'd like to lead on. I hope so because I for sure sometimes like to tell God what the plan is. And then my assumption is that he's like, okay, you're right. That sounds like a good plan, Sam. So glad you're in charge here. Sam, thanks for filling (laughs) me in. (laughs) I'm so glad you told me 
what the plan for your life is because I I didn't know. So I woke up that morning and I told God, okay, listen, I'm ending this part of my, my work life that it's been such a big part of my life for so long. And I'm starting this new career. So I just want to focus on work. I don't want to date anybody. I do not want to be thinking about marriage and, and why I'm single. Cause that was kind of a, a, a hard part of my life at the time. Cause I didn't want to be single, okay. but I wasn't dating anybody that I, were you seeing peers get married? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. yeah. Cause by that time I was 30. Okay. And so most of my friends were married. Some were starting to have children and I was the one and everybody felt like, well, you don't need to be single. Why are you being single? Yeah. And, 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 I thought, well, I, I, I don't want to be single either, but I'm not meeting anybody. It's such a strange like pressure, especially in Christian circles. Yes. It's like, it's astronomical in so many yeah. ways. It's, it seems like it should just be this easy thing. And I was at Rock Harbor and they have a big singles ministry. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. I'm sure you can find somebody and just marry them. Yeah. Like, it's not that easy to find somebody that you actually want to fuse your entire life with and, and be married with forever. You know, I, I feel like there's a, a well, I don't want to say this. There's a, there's a generation that sort of is like, well, she believes in Jesus and you believe in Jesus. Yeah. Just get married. Just make it work. Two-month engagement. Just ready, yeah. set, go. What's the yeah. problem? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, I was not finding it to be that easy. So we that morning, I told God, I don't want to focus on my singleness. I just want to focus on this new career path. Yeah. And I felt like God was like, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> Sam. And I met my husband that night. How did you meet him? I met him in a parking lot. Okay. Because all great romances begin in parking lots. Yeah. And yeah, so I met him in a parking lot. And I'm trying to think that, of a movie where that's how it starts and I can't think no, of one. No, no fairy tales like that. No, um, we definitely don't have like a fairy tale story. You know, God, God's hand was in that. But we, um, we met in a parking lot where literally he was leaving. It was in the orange circle. So okay. the way that the, you know, the orange or some people call it the plaza, but um the some of the parking lots intersect so yeah. when you're leaving one restaurant you can be in a shared parking lot so he was leaving one establishment oh okay i was leaving a restaurant with a girlfriend that we'd gone out to dinner to celebrate my last day of work okay and um we literally intersected in the in the parking lot and he would tell you this story um as well, but he doesn't really remember meeting me because he was, this was in his former life and he was a little, little tiny, tiny bit inebriated at that point. So, um, he, he doesn't remember the actual meeting of me, but I do. And so he was, he was a little stumbly in the, in the parking lot. It's purely your story to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, the kind of the short, cause that's a whole nother story. That's a big story. But the, the short version of that is that God had his hand in our relationship from the very beginning. And even when from the outside looking in, it didn't seem like a likely pairing. I think even to, to us, it didn't seem like a like a likely pairing, but God so clearly had a, had um, a plan for this relationship mm-hmm. and this marriage. It's now been almost 10 years, you know, yeah. but so we, that night that we met, you know, he was a drunk kid in a parking lot hitting on some girl that he saw that he thought was pretty. And I was this recently graduated from Pepperdine University graduate. And I was, I felt like I was, you know, God, this is the guy that you want for me because I felt like God was telling me to talk to him. In fact, one of the, one of the parts of the story that I think is pretty funny is I normally would not pay much attention to some drunk guy in a parking lot. But for some reason, I felt compelled to talk to him. And my girlfriend who was there with me was even 
questioning my decisions at the time. And I remember her even saying, <laughs> Sam, what, what are you doing? Let's get in the car and go. Yeah. Why are, what are you doing? Yeah. And then when James ended up asking me for my phone number, I, I gave him my number and she even said, are you giving him your real number? She was so shocked at what I was doing. And I was shocked at what I was yeah. doing. I couldn't believe that I was moving forward with this. Even as I was writing my phone number or putting my phone number into his phone, I couldn't believe that I was doing it. If that makes sense. I, I was thinking, what is happening to me? Why am I doing this? Mm. But God, you had just told God 12 hours earlier that you had no interest. Exactly. And then he, he put this guy in my life and then we hit it off and then we were pretty sure we wanted to get married almost right away. Yeah. 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 So what, what year did you guys get married? 2012. 10 years. Yep. What what, what date? We we got (laughs) put me on the spot with the date. (laughs) What is our anniversary? November 10th, 2012. Okay. So you'll celebrate 10, 10 years this November. Yeah. So we met in October, October 7th, 2011, and we were married one year later. Wow. Almost exactly to the day. That's awesome. Yeah. Very fast. Yeah. And and I I mean, I know your husband quite well. He's no longer a stumbling drunk guy hitting on girls in a parking lot. No. Know that for certain. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. God definitely did a lot in his life in these last 10 years. Pretty revolutionary. He actually completely changed his life within the first couple of months of us knowing each other. And that was one of the things that God had had for him was this um, bringing him over to the, the side of Christ as opposed to the side of darkness and debauchery. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think sometimes God, I, I think we think of God's story as like very linear, linear mm-hmm. oftentimes, but it's usually not that way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, it sounds like what Jimmy needed was something he wanted so badly that he was motivated to change. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, like I said, that whole story is, is something else, but, but the, the end of it is that he, my husband is now like super faithful man of God. Like, I don't even know anybody who loves Jesus as much as he does. And then, um, we, you know, our marriage hasn't been perfect and we've had lots of struggles and things, but the God has been so faithful and, and, um, it's been, it's been a great journey. Yeah. So, so 10 years of marriage. Um, I mean, there's a handful of people right now that are engaged here, mm-hmm. at, here mm-hmm. at Bridge. <clears throat> I want, I, I wanted to ask you a couple questions, but Maybe I'll just say it so we can get back to it and I don't forget. But I, I do want to hear about how you found this place, previously yeah. Zion and now Bridge. But um, paint, a, paint a picture of engagement and early marriage for you guys. Uh, um, <laughs> we actually were just having this conversation with one of the newly engaged couples at the church. Yeah. And um, because we, so we, again, I have so many stories of how I my life doesn't follow the typical narrative and things don't happen to me in the typical way. And one of them was our engagement because we knew right away very early on that we wanted to get married. In fact, we loved each other so deeply so early on that we would literally say to each other, I love you. Please don't be crazy. You're not crazy. Are you You do have some crazy past that we, that I don't know about. Like I'm already in love with you, but I'm still figuring you out. But I don't know you. Please do not be insane. Please don't have some super shady past that's going to come out, please. And I remember we, we were earnestly saying that to each other, you know, um, very early on (laughs) because we seriously felt the love feelings, but we didn't know each other. So, but we were also trusting, I, I for sure was just trusting God because I felt so strongly yeah. that this was a person that God had for me. Um, so we, we were already talking marriage. I mean, just a few weeks into our relationship. Wow. 
and it wasn't that we had active plans, like here's the plan for our wedding, but it, we, we knew what we knew. And it was that kind of that cliche that when you, when you truly know, then there wasn't this grappling of, okay, how are we going to make this work? Yeah. It's just a matter of making it work. Like we just knew that this is the, this is the relationship. This is it. This is the person for me. Do you feel like that um, maybe looking back, you know, you were, you're mentioning that there's, uh, there's a feeling of being left behind, like your friends are getting married yeah. young. Do you, did, did you feel like you've done enough life and you kind of know how mm-hmm. people are that at that point that was a huge benefit to you? Yeah. In fact, I've, I've, I've told that to others who are older when they've gotten engaged is yeah. that one of the benefits of that is you've lived so long and, and, and had so many experiences in life that you know the things that you're not willing to, to yeah. negotiate, you know, that, you know, the things that you need to have in, in your partner. And, and if you're a Christian really, truly have a relationship with Jesus, then it's so much easier to hear his voice in mm-hmm. your head when it comes to a relationship. Yeah. And so what I would tell people, what we tell people all the time, still now my husband and I both, when we're talking to young couples before engagement is you really have to seek the Lord and, and, and listen to him. Because he'll tell you if yeah. this is the right person for you or not. And yeah. you have to really be honest with yourself because you might say on paper, this person is the person I want to be with. Yeah. But the reality is that the God, that God is prompting you out of that. Yeah. But, but logically to the world, that doesn't make any sense. But if God is telling you, this is not the person I have for you, no matter what it looks like on paper, no matter what it looks like to the rest of the world, then you have to be obedient to what God's mm-hmm. telling you. And sometimes that's not easy to do. No, sometimes, you know, deep down the second I ask God, I already know that it's. Yeah. Evil. Yeah. Whereas for me, I, I had the almost the opposite, opposite experience where with my husband, I, I was like, are you kidding me? And this is something that I would tell him to his face if he was, he knows that yeah, I, that's the way that I felt about him. I was like, no, I don't want this guy. Like, I want a guy who's got his life together, not this guy who's like figuring it out. He's young and sloppy and I don't want this, you know, and, and me pleading with God to get me somebody a little more buttoned up and, and put together and, and seemingly, seemingly had their life together. But what God was, was so clearly conveying to me is I have a plan for this guy. And, and you are the conduit through it. This is going to happen. And, and through this experience, both of your lives are going to be radically changed for the better. And, and so, you know, you have to be obedient to what I'm asking you to do and which is to, to help me bring this guy into the kingdom of, of Christ. And, and so we, we did that, but during, during our courtship period, you know, I was a little resistant. It's like, I knew that I loved him, but I, I didn't love the, the, the package, like he was just messy and, and, and not him, not, I mean, he was messy for sure. He still leaves his laundry on the floor, but, but I love you, honey. But, but it wasn't, that's not what I mean, but like his life was still messy. He still had a foot in the world and a foot in, in, yeah. in the kingdom. And he didn't know which world he really wanted to fully embrace. And I was getting impatient because I knew the kind of husband and father, future father that I wanted for my life in a relationship. And I felt like he was struggling to be that person. And I was like, hurry up and get over here because we don't have a lot of time to waste, you know, as I was thinking, but he, you know, God's timing is also perfect. Even though I felt like I was so much older when I got married, I was 31 when I got married and I, I, that was so much older than, Mm. than I wanted to be when I got married. Um, but so what I tell people now is, you know, that there's so much wisdom that you gain from those years of being single, even when you don't want to be single, that if you're just obedient to God and you just focus on the Lord, that, 
that, and if he's called you to marriage and you know that, then it'll happen, you know, and, and it'll, it'll be, it'll be beautiful. Um, and so we, our engagement never even really happened in that traditional way because we, we knew that we wanted to get married. We were planning to get married and around probably spring. So we met in October. And like I said, we got married the following November and we, we went from barely knowing each other to having, I think it was like 168 people at a wedding, you know? So we, we, we probably around the spring were talking actively about, we want to get married. And at that point he had stopped, you know, a lot of the lifestyle things that were, um, a hiccup to his faith walk. And he was, we were going to church. We, we came here, which I'll elaborate on that a little bit more. Um, cause we felt, he felt called here, um, by the Lord. And, um, so we kind of had our established a plan and I had told him cause we were so poor too. We had no money, none. We were so poor. And, and he was saying, well, I can't, we can't have a wedding. I can't propose to you without a ring. And I told him, I don't care what you, you could propose to me with like a piece of string. I wouldn't care. You know, that's not what being married is about to me. I just, I want us, our lives to be together. I really don't care about a ring. And he, but he was adamant that he wanted to be able to provide that. And, but we had no money. He had no money. He was working at as a handyman and he was struggling to pay rent. He has a three-year-old son at this time. And, um, it just, it seemed that this, it would never happen. God, that this was something that would never happen. Um, And this is kind of, I don't know how much time we have, but I do have a very cool. We have have as much time as we want. I have a cool ring story. The story of my my rings is is pretty cool. So we had no money and, but we knew we wanted to get married. I was content with getting married with a piece of string. He didn't want that. So little did I know that he was so determined to be able to get me an actual ring to propose with that he cold called a local jeweler in Tustin and asked the jeweler if he would by chance want to trade work. If, if this jeweler would have anything that he could do construction wise, handyman wise in exchange for a ring. And I think about it that now, and I'm thinking, what are the chances that anybody would say to a strange kid who walks in, in his store, I really want to get a ring. Can I do anything around your shop that would allow me to pay for a ring? And that this guy said, actually, yeah, we need some new, we need some new display cabinets for our jewelry. Can you build display cabinets? And my now husband had never built a display cabinet in his life, but he was like, sure. I'll figure it out. (laughs) I'll do it. (laughs) I'll do it. So, and there's more to the story that I'm sure he would share better, but the, the shortened version of it is that he built these display cabinets. Mind you, he had no money. So when he was buying the materials to, to, for the display cabinets, this was all out of the no money that he had. And he, he was like desperate to do it well because he knew that this was going to result in the ring. But he couldn't afford to make any mistakes right. with it because every piece of wood, every nail, everything that he was buying was money that he didn't really have. And, and he was also doing this without telling me. So he was working on it when he would be at his apartment and I was at my apartment. It, you know, he, he was doing all this stuff and I didn't know. He ended up telling me, because one time I did see him working on, on the cabinets and he said that he was building them for a watch designer and just as work to do. And I, I said, oh, cool. You know, and, and that was that. Um, so this guy was so determined to propose to me that he goes to this jeweler trades work with him has a vision apparently for the ring that he wants to propose with. And then, um, 
makes it happen. And so I, he, and then he had this plan for proposing and he had this whole plan in place. And, and then, um, his, his proposal plan didn't even work out because the, my father-in-law let the cat out of the bag that he was going to propose to me. When we were I've heard another version of that story that he uh, he wanted to ask your dad's permission, so he oh. took him out to a restaurant. When they got there, it no longer existed, or something oh, like that. Yeah, that was like a whole other story. Yeah. So while we were while we knew that we wanted to get married, and I, and and we were we knew that this was the plan for us, right? So my my James was it was important to him to get my dad's permission, um, and so he 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 did the thing where he asked my dad, and my dad I'm the only girl, so my dad's very protective and. And he was very, uh, he wasn't a big fan. My dad also comes from a generation of men who wore like suits to church and believe in like being like clean, clean shaven. And my husband was, you know, constantly rolling around like a hoodie with like a scruffy beard. And my dad just could not get on board with that. He used to always say that he, he, he looked, uh, like a hobo is what he would say. He's like, I don't know why he dresses like that and why he, he won't shave his face. And (laughs) like, dad, don't, he's, he's a great guy if you would just get to know him, but he couldn't really see past that stuff. But I think it was more that just that I was his baby girl and he wouldn't have liked anybody. He was looking for some roadblocks. He was looking for stuff. Yes. Um, and so he, he took my dad out to to dinner and I'm sure my dad knew what was going on and he was a little begrudgingly going along for the ride but he he went and my husband drives to this restaurant and the restaurant is closed I think it was like a Sunday or something so the restaurant happened to be closed that day okay. <laughs> and he's like oh my gosh he calls me the restaurant's closed what do I do and my dad's following in the car behind him and I said what are you talking about you didn't think to look into that at the time like, I don't know what to do. What do I do? And I said, I, I don't know. And then what makes it worse is my dad was diabetic and he had already taken his insulin shot. And oh, so, so he my dad, he needs to eat right away. So I t- I'm telling James, I'm like, my dad already took his shot. You have to take him to get food. He, 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 I don't know what you're going to do, but you have to drive somewhere and just feed him. And, and then maybe you just ask him another time. And so he, I don't know, even to this day, I'm not sure exactly what he told my dad other than obviously the place is closed. We have to find somewhere else, but... And then the icing on that cake is like, he told, he asked my dad if he could marry me. And my dad essentially said, no, my dad was like, I don't really like you, but I know that you're going to do the, my daughter's. Anyway. Yeah, I know that you guys are going to do this anyway. So fine. But it's worth noting that when my dad died, he loved James. In fact, okay. when my dad was like on his, like in his last couple days of life, one time my husband walked into the room and my dad, who's like, had been almost nonverbal at this point like lifted up his arms and he was like, there he is. And he was so excited to see my husband. So it's worth noting that he ended up falling in love with him. Um, once he got to know him past those rough edges that, that sometimes people see when they see my husband, he's, he, my, my dad ended up loving him, but your husband's rough edges are what make him so endearing. Yeah. At least to me. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's fantastic. But, um, the quick little proposal story was we were in actually at Rock Harbor church. Okay. Um, cause we were still sort of going to, we were actually coming here and going to Rock Harbor. We we're still going to both churches. Um, and we were in church on a Sunday and I didn't know that he, I mean, we knew that we wanted to be married, yeah. but I didn't know that he actively had a plan for proposing with a ring when we were sitting in church and my father-in-law happens to be there. And my father-in-law says to him, Hey, so how's it going building those cabinets, which I did know about. Cause I thought he was building them for the watch designer. And James says, uh, it's going fine. It's going fine. And then he goes, well, is he almost done with the ring? And my husband's face turned like ghost white. 
and we're in, if you've ever been to Rock Harbor, it's a pretty big church. They have these seats and then the lights went completely dark because worship was starting and I could just feel my husband's like whole heart just like fall to the floor. And I'm like sitting there trying to pretend like I don't know what's going on. And then my father-in-law looks at him and he's like, what, what? She knew that you were going to do this, right? And husband was like, dad, she didn't know. And then it was, and then the music starts. And so I, I, for worship. Yeah, start for worship. <laughs> everybody lift your hands and, and praise. And so I, I was trying to reassure him and I said, well, I, I, I don't know what it looks like. And I don't know when you're going to propose or how you're going to propose. And he was like, forget it. I'm, I'm so upset. But he ended up um, giving me the, the rings when we already had our invitations ready to go out for our wedding. Like we, we were already actively yeah. planning our wedding and the, yeah. the rings were, like I said, sort of just a, a, th- a thing that he felt that he needed, but I didn't really care so much about that. You mentioned, uh, he, he sort of sensed uh, a calling from the Lord to be here. Oh, uh, yeah. Now it's now bridge, but back then it was Zion community church. Yeah. So, so how did you guys end up here and land here? Yeah. So we were, we started um, coming here, even when we were dating, because this was the church that my father-in-law was going to at the time. And okay. so it was kind of, I think the only church that my husband really knew. And since he wasn't really walking with the Lord at the time that we met, um, he, he, um, uh, like I was going to rock Harbor happily and I, I was enjoying it there. I wasn't really ready to invite him to church cause I was still sort of resistant to the relationship. Okay. And what, what ultimately brought us here was he texted me probably a week after we'd met, maybe two weeks. And he said, will you come to my church with me? And I wanted to say no, because I didn't want to go because I wanted to stay at my church. But I felt like God was saying, this is what we've been planning. This is the moment. He's asking you to go to church. Mm -hmm. Do not say no to that. This is a guy who is clearly not walking with me. He's inviting you to church. Say yes. So I said I would come and I did. And God spoke to me in this building in this pew over here. And I read back then they were read back then. And I sat here, even though I was kind of, I don't know when you come to a church that you don't really want to be at, not because there's anything wrong with it, but because I, I, I didn't want to be here with him (laughs) at the time. I was just like, I don't want to, I want to be at my church and I don't want to kind of walk this guy into the kingdom of Jesus. I, I just want him to decide to do it on his own and then come get me when he's there. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to be there for the messy part of it. And uh, it's funny because we came to church that Sunday and there was a guest uh, pastor and I don't, I don't remember his name or anything about him other than the part of the message that he spoke was how God sometimes calls us into missions, including people that come into our life that we sometimes don't want to have to, to, to um, be in relationship with and to minister to, but that's what God has called us to. And I was sitting there listening to this guy sitting next to this guy going, what is happening right now? Like, it's so clear that God had this message for me. And I've called you to this and our, our act of obedience as people who follow Jesus is to, is to be obedient, is to say yes to what God has called us to do, even when we don't want to. So here I was listening to this guy talk about, sometimes that means a difficult relationship, maybe healing a relationship with a family member, being in a relationship with somebody who you, you know, you don't, you don't really necessarily want to. And it was so clear to me that God was speaking to me. And then during the worship here, I had this like vision during the worship time of seeing my husband get saved and seeing like the men of the church putting their hands on him and praying over him and him weeping and coming to the Lord. And that was something that so cool. I clung on to for so, for so long. And, and what's in, um, also interesting is right during that time. And I didn't know 
my now father-in-law, um, he was a stranger to me because I barely knew the guy sitting next to me. I barely knew James myself, you know? And, and so after I had that vision of him being saved, I felt like God was saying, now go share that vision with his dad. And I was like, no, I, first of all, I don't know anybody in this church. I'm new to this building. And you want me to go to a stranger who I've never met the guy, his dad and tell him, hi, sir. I just had a vision of your son getting saved. And I wanted to say, I, like, that sounds crazy to me. I'm not doing it. And I felt so clearly like God was like, yes, this is, yes, go, go and tell, go and tell his dad. And I was seriously, I'm, I'm so the, multiple times in my life, I have described myself as Jonah. God is so clear in what he wants me to do. And I'm like, why? No, find somebody else. Yeah. I'm not doing this. And then going to Tarshish. So I was like, I'm not doing this. And it, anyway, obviously I did because God was like, yes, you will do this for me. So I did. And I went up to this strange man and I said, hi, you don't know me, but I just want you to know I was praying and I had a vision of your son coming to Jesus here and the men of this church putting their hands on him and praying over him and him weeping and coming to know Jesus. So I just want you to know that if, you've, if you're worried about him, that I feel like God's going to rescue him very soon. And my father-in-law starts weeping in church. And mind you, James had already left because as soon as church was over, he beelined it out of the building. And I, you? yeah, like he like had to get out of here. And he, so he was in the front of the building and I was trying to work up the courage to tell his dad. And so I was trying to get out of here too, but I thought, but God was clearly telling me I had to tell him this vision. So I did. And he started crying and he was like, thank you so much. And then that was that. And then that exact vision happened several months later where the men of the church prayed over him. He wept and came to Jesus. So it's awesome. Yeah. And, and you guys did get married. We did get married. And, and I, I guess that would be flash forwarding what, seven or eight years, but you have yeah. two beautiful kids. Yeah. Um, if, if you're open to it, I, I'd love for you just to share a little bit about that journey for you. I think there's so many people yeah. looking for, for hope and, and kind of what you've experienced. Yeah. So. So the story with that, which a lot of people know, is that we we knew because my husband had, at the time we got married, Jaden was four, so he's little, but my, my husband already had a, a young child. And yeah. so we we knew that we wanted to start adding to our family right away. And I was not somebody who felt like, oh, I need years and years of being married before we can have more children. I, I knew that I wanted to have children. And in fact, that was the, of all the things that I've said in this um, time about how I didn't fit in. I didn't know what I wanted. I wasn't sure what I was going to be when I grew up. The one thing that I always knew was that I was, I wanted to be a mom. That was yeah. like the one confident constant in my life was yeah. I want to be a mom. And so I, that, that was so clear to me that we were, when we were on the same page that we weren't going to take a year off. Everybody told us we were crazy when they would ask, are you guys going to have kids right away? You're going to wait. And we said, we I, we're not, we're open to right away. And everybody said, you guys are crazy. Just enjoy being married. And, yeah. and we said, we know what we have and we, we really want to, you know, but we had already had, since we had such a fast courtship and all these other things that were non-traditional, we, we, we were well versed with people being sort of opposed to yeah. the way that we were doing things. So it was already kind of, yeah. And we were like, we're, happy. we're good with this, you know? And, and we used to say, we can't wait till it's been, you know, two, three years married that, and people stop thinking, oh, this is just a you know, a rushed, you know, thing, or these, these two are so silly, or they're going to, you know, we, we thought we'll prove them wrong several okay. years down the line. We yeah. used to say that I can't wait to be married for several years so that people can stop wondering if we're going to make it, you know? Um, 
so anyway, when we got married, we knew we wanted to, to have kids right away. And we got married in November and I thought we'll probably have a Christmas announcement. You know, it's just going to be, be, be great. And we didn't. And then kind of like how I, I always knew that God was real, even when I was little and nobody, it's like, I have, I know what I know. And I think that's one of the giftings that God has given me is that he speaks very deeply into my heart about truths. And I had this feeling that if we didn't get pregnant right away, that there was something wrong. I don't, I, I don't know. It could have just been paranoia, but I, it was more, it was deeper than that. It was almost like God right was from preparing. the beginning. You had that, that just, sense. it was like, I felt like God was preparing my heart okay. almost for the journey that was coming. And so after that first month when we weren't pregnant and the second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever, I, I thought something isn't right. I mean, mm. some people say, Oh, it you know, take a year, you know, just, just keep trying and, and don't worry about it. And, and it'll happen. And, thought, okay, okay, but it's not. I just had this feeling. So I ended up calling the doctor after six months and they, they were like, oh, well, I mean, it's kind of early. You know, we usually tell people don't worry about it till you, till it's been a year. Um, but I mean, why don't you come in? And so that just started it. And then that was the beginning of a very long process of learning that we would not be able to have children naturally. And that, um, the, you know, the term is infertile and it was this, you know, you hear that term and then you, everything you've ever dreamed for your life, the way that you've thought your life was going to go just completely implodes at that moment. And that's what it was. And I was so mad and so resistant to accepting that as my truth. So we just, you know, I kind of ignored it and, and, Mm. and thought, you know, we'll do, we'll deal with this later. Um, we, we did try a, a, a small series of medical things to try to fix a couple problems that we thought we might have and, and thought that maybe this will fix things and, and it'll get better. It didn't. And then, um, it, you know, probably a year into the, the experience, I, I, I said, I can't, I can't do anything else right now. And we didn't have any money to face doing big things like IVF or any fertility treatments. We didn't have money for stuff like that. So that seemed impossible. Mm. I thought, I don't know even how, if you, if you can't have children naturally, like what are your options? You just don't get to have kids, you know? And, and I know, you know, there's lots of people who have adoption on their hearts and things. And so we thought, well, we'll have to pray about that. I'm not ready for that conversation right now is what I thought, what I said at the time. And I was mostly just mourning the loss of the life that I thought I was going to have and feeling angry at God for who I I thought I'm such a faithful servant of yours. I thought I was, and I I tried to be, you know, a good steward of the things that you've given me. And I don't understand why Mm I am going through this. This It's like the one thing I've always wanted so badly. Like, why, why can't, why can't I have this? And so I went through a period of just really deep, dark mourning and loss. I mean, for years. And we um, just kind of shelved that, you know, it and thought, well, maybe maybe it'll happen on its own. And it never did. And uh, several years had gone by and um, we were probably four years into the journey. So a year and a half of it was actively trying to figure out what was wrong. And then probably another two years of just stagnant stagnation as I, as I grappled with the reality of everything and feeling lost and, and really, really, um, sad. And, and then, um, right around, uh, I think it was 2017, my, my dad fell ill and he, my dad's had, had had up until that point kind of reoccurring health issues and, 
was older anyway. Um, so it wasn't a huge surprise that he was sick, but he fell ill and um, ended up being, um, I think that was, if I'm trying to remember the math correctly, I think it was 2017. Um, and he ended up falling on to, into hospice like in May. And I was finishing up a semester and actually the church had the bridge, which we were now actively going to, um, what had told me, had asked me to do the vacation Bible school to lead it. Oh, I remember that. It was, was one that? of my first ones here. Yeah. yeah. So was that 2017, you think? It wasn't 2018, I don't think. Was that? I, I can't remember. It was like no. pirate ship theme. Yeah, or I can't remember. Like but anyway, it was either 2017. It could be, I, I'll, I'll try to remember the date. But anyway, so my, my dad, um, my dad was really sick and ended up passing away that, that same week of VBS. And, and so I was coming to VBS and being like, I was the, the character on stage with all the kids. Right. And so I was doing that and then I would leave here and go, go over to my dad's. And then the night my dad died, the next morning was the big finale of VBS. And so I came and I remember trying to come up on stage and just being the big character, um, lots of energy for the kids. And, but I just lost my dad and, it's like so many so illustrations much. going on, trying to play a character and a role at yeah. such a difficult time. Yeah. So it was, it was, but what happened, and the reason why I'm sharing that now is that once that all transpired and I had like lost my dad, like my dad was gone. And obviously we know that life can be very brief. Like the brevity of life is something that we deal with all the time. We don't know. But having, losing somebody, losing your dad the reality of it hit me so hard. And I just thought, well, he's gone now. And, and all these experiences I had with him are memories now, just overnight, Mm. like in a moment. Yeah. And, and, and it just struck me and I couldn't really let go of that realization that all these things that I'd hoped for him, including like meeting his grandchildren, like he would never see them on this side. And that was just, I, I was so sad about it, you know, and I was thinking, what are we waiting for? All, all this time that we've been waiting to have kids because we were waiting for finances or we were waiting for all these things to happen that would make it a, 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 the perfect situation. And I, I, I went to my husband and I, I said, I don't want to wait anymore. I want to pursue whatever we need to pursue to try to have a family. We, we don't need to waste any more time. And so we, we started the process of looking into fertility doctors to help us along the way. And, uh, the, the doctor, we ended up not being able to go through our insurance because they didn't cover anything. And the doctor that I ended up, um, finding was a referral from a friend. And, and I think this was in like summer. So August ish. And then she uh, didn't have any availability until like the following February or March, like to come in. Wow. That's how booked her practice. Yeah, okay. Was. So I was devastated, of course, because I'm thinking I'm ready. Just like when I was in school, I'm finally ready. I need this thing to happen like right away because I'm finally ready. And after all these long years, long years of waiting, I'm ready, and I don't want to have to wait six months for for this now. And so, but sure enough, once again, you know, God was reminding me that His timing is better than mine. And so, I was so disappointed. Well, through like a miracle, we actually got a phone call in October saying, "Hey, we actually can come in. You you can come in now." So we were able to go in and um, see the doctor and get get things going. And we tried a few different things that that we actually were able to get pregnant. um, That that November. 
So um, about six weeks later, we were super excited. And so we told our family and everybody. We even announced it in church because we'd had so many people that had been praying for us to have children and all this stuff. We had people who were like, we, we, you're going to have twins. We just believe all this stuff. And, and all these years, all these years of like long awaited hope. And we finally were pregnant. We couldn't believe it. And we were mm. so excited. And so we, we went in full you know, guns blazing into it. And we were, you know, so, so happy. And then we found out that the pregnancy was actually ectopic, which, um, for people who don't know, it just means that the, the, it's non-viable because the, the embryos were actually in my fallopian tube, which you can't have a pregnancy there. Right. And we had had so many people that were praying for our pregnancy. So many people who had been praying that we would have twins, all this stuff. And we found out there was actually two and mm. they were both ectopic. And so we couldn't believe it, but we had to have a surgery. Otherwise it could have ruptured and, and taken my life. And so obviously that was like the, uh, I can't even say that that was devastating. That's not even the words, you know, the low, like lowest point in the whole journey, the lowest point in the whole journey. Cause I thought, if we get pregnant, then that'll be great. You know, I, I never thought that if we, I, I was, I even told, I don't remember who it was, but I told somebody that I wasn't worried about the pregnancy because I thought for sure all of our troubles were behind us. I thought God's not going to allow me to go through all of this grief and trying to get pregnant and then have this not work out. Right. There's no way. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And, and, and so when we lost that pregnancy, I was, I, I mean, I was just devastated. I mean, there's not even words. I, I, I still think back on that time and I was, I wasn't even me, you know, I, that wasn't even the, the version of me that anybody knows that I was in such a dark place. I remember on my darkest moment, I remember I even said to my husband, I, I was like, can you lose your salvation? I don't know what I believe anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and he was crying and he just was holding me and he was like, no, we can't be plucked from his hand. You know, you're Mm. there and he, he's going to get you back. You know, we just, we have to get through this, this dark time. We're going to get back. Yeah. And he was right. And we did, but that, that kind of makes that whole time seem like it was short. It was, it was long and arduous and, and, and deeply devastating. But what through all that happened was we were able to get pregnant again um, through the, the, through the also very long process of IVF, but we were able to have our twins. Yeah. And so they were born in March of 2019. And that was just like the greatest, the greatest thing yeah. ever. And just the response from, I always tell people too, like, I, I feel like my kids wouldn't exist if it weren't for the prayers of the people of this church. Quite literally, I feel like they wouldn't exist because yeah. I, I feel like they were prayed into existence through this church because so many people so deeply felt my pain and agony and, and wanted so badly for us to have that. And, and so they, um, and I, I, whenever I, I see them here and see other people interact with them, I'm just reminded of God's faithfulness and how they wouldn't exist if it weren't for, I didn't have faith at the time. I was completely in like a dark place where I couldn't pray for myself. Hmm. Other people were fasting and praying for me. Yeah. And that's the importance of like the brethren, right? The church is that when we don't have enough faith for ourselves, the, the body of Christ can lift you up. And I don't know how I would have survived that time if it weren't for the people of this church, because I was completely unable to function. And yet somehow through that time I was prayed into, 
um, life again. And, and so it's like the breath of the prayers of everybody else, like breathed life into me again. And I was able to like live again and, and, and then welcome the twins into the world. And, and so when I see them here interacting with the people of the church, it makes me so happy because yeah. I, I, I want them to know the stories of the fact that they exist because of the faith of other yeah. people. I'm sure there's people who just look at them running around causing mischief and think, I, I, I prayed, I prayed that you would be here one day and here yeah, you are yeah. on down the stairs with my, yeah. my kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're the mom of twins now. Yeah. They're two going on three. Yeah, they'll be three in a couple of months. I, I was just telling you, I, I feel like I'm drowning in toddler, just single. I can't imagine having two. So how's yeah. that for you? It's, it's fun. You know, I, I don't know any different. I mean, when I met Jaden, he was four. Yeah. So, and you know, he, it wasn't the same. I didn't have him as an infant. And so I, 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 I think that when people ask me, how do you do it with twins? And I say, I, I don't know any different. Yeah. You just somehow you do it. And there's definitely been some moments that you feel insane and that you cannot handle one more moment of tears or, you know, my son this morning threw an entire full blown body on the ground tantrum because his butter wasn't fully covering his toast in all four corners as he would like it to. And that warranted, I mean, full sackcloth and ashes. Full butter coverage is essential. It was so essential. And he, and so it's like moments like that. And you just think to yourself, all right, I can do this. I can do this. You know, it's, and then times two. So, but it, I feel that my kids are such a blessing and that they honestly are really, really good kids. Even though they have their moments, you know, they, they're a gift and such a joy. And to this day, and I say that I was actually talking to a girlfriend of mine who also went through an infertility journey for a long time. She's finally expecting as well. And I, I told her, I said, one thing I can tell you as somebody who has gone through so much trauma and loss is that you really will never take for granted the fact that you have your kids and that even in the moments when you feel like you're going insane and your kids are driving you absolutely crazy, that you will, you will feel the sense of, I'm so thankful that they are here. And I daily look at them and I'm not, this is not hyperbole. I daily look at them and think, I can't believe that they exist. I still do that. And they're almost three, yeah. almost every day. I think I can't believe that they're real. Yeah. I waited so long for them and I didn't think I would ever have them and they're real. And sometimes I look at them and I, I think I cannot believe that this, like my daughter, I look at her and I'm like, I can't believe you're mine. Yeah. And my son, I, I, it's, it's almost like I still cannot believe that I get to see every day God's active living promise. Yeah. We were just talking about how I don't get really emotional, but if I talk about the fulfillment of God's promise in my life, that is enough to make me want to cry. Like they, they just seeing them daily, knowing they are a literal answer to prayer. Your little miracles walking around your house. Literal miracles walking around. And I yeah. get to see them all the time. It's such a blessing. Well, what would you say? I, I think so. I mean, we've had this conversation before and, and you know, we've experienced miscarriage and, and those mm-hmm. sorts of things before. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things I found was when it, happens you you feel like you're the only one that's ever happened to and then you talk about it and you realize that's that's a story and it it feels like wow that's so kind of liberating in a way that your grief is shared in some ways but what would you say to someone who's maybe tuning into this and listening and they're not on the other side of it they're right in the middle of it and they feel like they're in the the dark period of time what would you say to them yeah um i would say first and foremost you know that 
the what you just said, that freedom of knowing you're not alone was what carried me through some of those dark mm-hmm. moments because it really is very isolating. And I actually felt like when we were first going through our infertility journey that it, like nobody was talking about it. Like I would Google search support groups and things and I, you couldn't find anything. It just felt mm-hmm. like it, there was nothing there. Nobody was talking about it. There was just so very little social support for, for that. And I, I thought... Well, well, what do you do then? I just am supposed to be sad alone in my house because there's no one to talk to. How come there's nobody to talk to? Mm. And and especially if you're calling a doctor and they're saying, "Sorry, we're booked for 18 months." You yeah. know, there's people out there somewhere. Right, right. That, that's exactly what I thought. I thought, well, if her practice is that busy, there's got to be a lot of people who. But even years before that, when we were kind of in the beginning of our journey, there's just no support anywhere, and nobody was talking about it. And and that to me was so isolating. And I did find a couple of little groups, and I found one. A, a blog from a lady who w- was expressing her journey and and that was like I needed that so I would tune into her blog all the time and read all of her posts because it's like I needed to have the connection with somebody else who was going through something similar so that I didn't feel so alone and crazy and so I would tell somebody who's going through that right now in the season of waiting that that well nowadays there's so much more out there. Like you can Google search on on social media, find support groups. So it's on the one hand, it's great to know that the support is there. So you never, you don't have to be alone. Um, and you can find other people who are, um, going through similar experiences. But, but the other part of it is that, you know, it sounds cliche, but you really have to stay steadfast in your hope. And I've had so many people tell me that my story gives them such encouragement because I was such a pillar of faith during that time. And and I say, no, I wasn't. I was not. I was a, a heaping mess of tears and and doubt. And I was not this pillar of faith. My husband was, and I'm thankful for him during that time, but I wasn't. I was doubting all the time. I even was at the point where I doubted what I believed. I was so upset. You know, I, I but the thing that I think I clinged, I, I cling to now and I clung to then was I, th- I kept to asking myself, am I still a Christian? Like, do I still believe in Jesus if I'm this upset and feeling this betrayed and this alone? Like, that's not the faith that I used to proclaim to have. Like yeah. somebody who believes in Jesus shouldn't feel this low and this dark and this lonely because you have this hope. So why do I feel this dark and low? Like maybe I don't believe what I thought I believed. And then I used to ask myself if somebody that I know, or even a stranger came up to me and told me that they were struggling with their faith or that they didn't know what to believe, would I just say, yeah, you're right. Like there's nothing to believe in. Or would I try to encourage them? And the answer was, I would try to encourage them. And that's what reminded me. I really do believe. Yeah. I just didn't have enough faith, enough faith for myself during that time. It's like I could easily extend God's grace to so many other people, but for some reason I I felt like it it just wasn't going to apply to me. Which is why it the the fact that so many other people were praying for me during that time was so important. Yeah. So I think that for the person who's struggling if you can find yourself in a position to be able to share your struggles with somebody else so that they can pray for you, if you feel like you're not strong enough to pray for yourself, then share it because then that person or those people can pull you up out of that muck and mire. Ultimately it's Jesus who's who's doing that, but we're the hands and feet. So like we can pull you out of the darkness 
until you're strong enough to stand on your own. And while you're waiting for that collision, I always call it the collision of the waiting and the promise. Like there's a moment when the waiting and the promise collide and it's, it's beautiful and chaotic and it looks different for everybody. But the, the, the moment of waiting will, the promise will come true. We just don't know what it looks like, but God has, God's promises for us are, are always going to happen but they don't always look the way that we want them to in the moment that we want them to. And I'm like a great example of always, it's like, I want what I want when I want it. And God's saying, here's my timing of something, or here's the way I want something to happen in your life. So if anybody is encouraged through my story, I hope it's just that I, I, I have so many examples of times when I felt like I had a plan for my own life, or I, I thought that this is the way something was going to happen. And God was like, no, I have a different plan for you. Yeah. And ultimately, that plan has always been the better plan, right? And and logically, we know that to be true, but to walk it out is a whole different thing. And so for me to be able to go through various different moments of trauma and disappointment and heartbreak and and things that didn't work out the way that I wanted them to, but to be able to stay with full confidence, like, no, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus Christ and I believe that he's my Lord and Savior. And I know I, that I know that I know just as a little girl who, who didn't know. Yeah. Um, I know that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that, that, that is the only thing that can give us comfort when we're in the midst of the struggle. You know, I'm thinking as you're talking, I, I, um, I was just thinking, I I know that you sing on the worship team Mm -hmm. and it, I I was almost as you're talking, having this, this sense that as people are led into worship, the next time that you're up here, I I think it's going to take on a new depth for Mm -hmm. them. I think one of the things that my wife and I have always appreciated about you and Jimmy is I feel like so so much uh, life is kind of curated almost for Instagram and mm-hmm. presented, you know, sanitized and cleaned and polished down. And I've never experienced that from the two of you. It's <laughs> it's this constant, like, it's almost like full permission, right? When you start talking to the two of you that you can be yourself. Yeah, It's, uh, you know what, I can help lead worship. I'm a faithful follower of Jesus, but I've been in a time where mm-hmm. I didn't even know if I believed that anymore. And you can say that. Yeah. Um, I, I really, really appreciate that about you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, as we kind of turn to the, to, towards the finish line a little bit, I, if you're, if you're comfortable with it, I, I want to, I want to do a little shout out cause you, you kind of need a book publisher <laughs> and it's not like you need an idea. You already have a book. So tell us what the book is about. Tell us what it is, and then I'm just going to shamelessly say, if you're watching this on YouTube, click the share button, <laughs> type in all bold on your Facebook or your Instagram, this woman needs a book publisher, and we're going to find one. Tell us about the book. I've read a, a little bit of it. I read one page, and I, I think I'm allowed to say this. If, if I'm not and people get upset, I, I literally turned to my wife and said, holy crap, <laughs> is an incredible writer. Really, honestly, you're an incredible writer. So tell us about the book. So this was something that I did not see coming on my radar. This was definitely one of those fulfillments of me telling my students in class, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And this is proof of that, that I feel like my life is still ever evolving in Christ's name and and things that he wants for me to do that there's lots of times that I'm thinking, what, where did that come from? But the, I, I, I did, I wrote a book, it's done, it's written, it's on my desk right now, waiting for me to kind of put the finishing touches on some of the editing that I've done. But it, the, the backstory is that one day, several, several years ago, I was, I think getting ready to go teach. And, um, 
I was getting dressed and, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this phrase popped into my head and I knew in my soul that it was a book title. <laughs> I was like, wait, that's weird. So I kind of ignored it and then went about my business. And if you've ever had encounters of God where he's clearly trying to speak to you, something specific like that, yeah. what, at least in my experience, and I know the experience of many others, is that it tends to be repetitive and it just happens over and over and over and over and over again. And so that was my experience with this book title was that it just kept coming in my head. I thought, what is this? And then because I knew it was a book title, I thought, what, 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 what am I supposed to do with that? I ended up writing it down because it, I felt so compelled. Just, I wrote down the book title and, and I, I thought, I don't know what this is. I let it go. And then over the next day, it's like God like downloaded all of this information, chapters, specific titles of the chapters, people to include in the, in the chapter. It's like God was telling me this is a book that I want written. And I was not a writer. So, I mean, I've like written kind of for fun, like poems and things at home, but nothing where I would sit down and say, oh, I want to write something. And, but I knew that God was telling me, I have a book for you to write and I want you to write it. So I started writing. And then before I knew it, I would have like chapters of this book written, pages and pages of this book written that I, I essentially didn't recall all the information that was in there. It's like I would write, 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 and then look, and there's eight pages written. And I, like you would read and couldn't believe you wrote yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. It's like I would read back stuff, and I'm thinking, I'm not that clever. I don't know where that stuff came from. Like, I, I just don't remember. Clever is a good word for what I've read. <laughs> it, it, it really is brilliant writing. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what this is. but So I, I ended up writing it, and um, I'll tell you the, the name of the book and the substance of it in just a sec. But the kind of the experience of writing it was that I— I started real um, dedicated to it because I felt almost like I couldn't stop it. It was like I couldn't stop the thoughts from coming into my head. And, and so I just would write them down. It got to the point where I had notes on my phone all the time or even a notepad. And I'd be in the middle of something else and something would come to my mind. and I would just jot it down. And I knew that I was supposed to add that to the book. And so from the very beginning, I knew exactly how many chapters were supposed to be in the book and exactly the characters that were supposed to be in the book and everything that I was supposed to do. So I started writing it and then, and then my dad got sick. Okay. So that's the time frame. The, yeah. And that was about two chapters in and I froze and then I stopped writing and then we were, we were deciding to try to go through fertility treatments and then. I just shelved the whole thing and then life took a completely different turn. But then we had young children at home and then, and then I just didn't find the time to write. And I thought, well, you know, maybe that was just a passing interest yeah. of mind, a phase, you know, but it was in the back of my mind and every once in a while it would come back up. And then, um, last January, so January of 2020 actually. So, so sorry, no, yeah. Right. January of 2021. Um, I was feeling all, um, probably from June to January. So June of 2020, we were several months into the pandemic and things were feeling kind of really unknown and everybody was trying to figure out how do we navigate this world. I was wrestling with my faith and I was wrestling with God again and, and saying like, I don't know who you are. Why, why is the world going through all this? You know, I have these young children that I just brought into this world. This doesn't look good. I don't like it the way the world feels and nobody can see each other and all this stuff. And I, I went through probably a six month journey of trying to, to reconnect with God. 
And during that time, I felt like God was showing me, um, kind of reminding me of who he was. And that January I of 2021, I felt this renewed, like God was reminding me of this book. And I thought, well, I haven't tried to write this book in so long. And I, I told my husband, I said, I think I'm going to try to finish writing that book. And he's like, oh yeah, whatever happened to that? I said, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know whatever happened to that. I just, it's still in the computer, you know, just saying, support, yeah. Honey. <laughs> yeah. He was like, well, yeah, you should finish it. And I said, I, I don't even know. I, I don't know. I guess maybe I'll try. And I did. And I sat down and with, and set goals for myself. And in six months, um, I had most of it written and then I, I just finished it a couple of, of weeks ago in its entirety. And when I, when I clicked the last period end of sentence on the last word of the last page, I couldn't believe that it was done. And so I, I literally finished that chapter of that book of, and, and thought, well, now what do I do? You know? So the book is called unpacked putting baggage where it belongs. And that is something that God gave me. Like I, that I don't know where that came from other than to say that was from God. And the book kind of walks the, the reader through, um, the experiences of our baggage, you know, carrying our baggage. What God was telling me was that, you know, we all have baggage that we carry around and that there's this common phrase that we hear when, when it comes to emotional baggage is not a new topic. Everybody talks about that. But what I felt like was God was sharing me, sharing with me was that what we commonly do when we talk about our baggage is we hear things like just leave your baggage at the door and, you know, come in here and, you know, be, be fulfilled or whatever, or just leave it at the door and don't worry about it right now. But what God was showing me was that what happens when we're done then, and we go to leave, we go open up the door. Where's our baggage? It's still sitting right there. Yeah. It's, and what God was trying to show me was this idea that in order to, for us to walk in total freedom and to, to walk in the ways that he truly wants for us, we can't just move our baggage around we have to, we have to unpack it. We can't just leave it aside somewhere. We can't just drop it off somewhere. We don't just want to put it in storage somewhere because then we're leaving it for future generations. Think about all the emotional baggage that we carry and the, yeah. the titles that we carry that we don't want, the, the addictions that we have, the lifestyle, all this stuff that we, we've packed up nice and neatly and we, we carry it around and think, well, this is just part of who I am. Yeah. And then if we don't want to carry that anymore, we just put it aside somewhere and think about the generations of kids who inherit that same baggage, you know, and, and stuff. And so what God was showing me is that if we do not unpack it, then all we're going to ever do is carry it ourselves or give it to somebody else to pick up. Mm. And so the, the book really walks the reader through the experiences of un, like, what does it mean to have this baggage? What does it look like to unpack your baggage and ultimately what's the goal here and the a goal lot of it is your story right yeah the goal is to unpack your baggage and to put it where it belongs which is ultimately at the feet of jesus right that he his desire for our life was not that we would walk burdened by the mm-hmm. things that have happened to us but we would walk in freedom and so the book every chapter features like a story of mine, like something from my own experiences, but then also someone from the Bible that I feel like, um, illustrates the journey really well. And everybody that I chose to write about were God, I felt like God had chosen for me. And, and so some of it's a little unexpected, you know, and, and even for me. So when I was studying and and praying and, and doing the work to write this book, a lot of it was revolutionary to me. 
and eye-opening to me. Um, And so, yeah, I got that done. And and I said the whole time that I was writing it that if this is just for me, that's okay. Because if God just wants me to write a book that's just for Sam, then I'll, then that's okay. Yeah. It, you know, I don't even know if, if it'll ever come to to print. But I know that the the experience of writing it was something that I needed. And then, but I have shared it with a couple of people and, and received some good feedback from it. You included my, my experience is I, I read it and I, I'm not trying to butter you up. This is mm-hmm. honest. I wouldn't say this out loud on a recording that's going to the World Wide Web if I didn't mean <laughs> it. Uh, there are major, major publishers that have published books that pale in comparison. It should be published. So we're gonna we're gonna find we're gonna find it for you. <laughs> Thank you. It's my you. new part time job. I love it. I love it. So I appreciate that. That's that's and you know when I when I stopped working at Cal State Fullerton, which I I, I say that I retired last last semester um, or in the fall semester, um, or sorry, I guess it was last spring semester, so that I could stay home with my kids. Um, I. I thought, I, I know that there's something else that God has for me. And I, I think that this was part of it, that this idea of being a writer and I have lots of other things that are in my heart to write. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited for this new phase. I still find it hard to kind of describe myself that way, but if I'm being honest, I really feel like this is something that God has for me. So Book I'm, tour. Bo- <laughs> I'm telling you Book tour to where to Tustin <laughs> at this pace, maybe 2026, you might have to wait, but we'll see. Right. <laughs> right. I'm excited though. And thank you for your support. Yeah. Um, well, we can wrap up. I, I've been ending our podcast. Just letting you know, fair warning. Uh, it seems like everyone's experiences, you might, you might get mobbed on a Sunday here. I, I think so often we, um, we feel like from afar, like I know who Sam is. Maybe I've heard her speak before, but mm-hmm. there's, there's like some feeling between us where we feel like I don't, I don't want to be the person to introduce myself and then have it be awkward. Yeah. And I feel like what we're, we're learning about this is it's no longer awkward. People yeah. get to approach you and feel like, oh my gosh, there's something that you said on this podcast that totally resonates with me. So yeah. I'm really excited to see what cool. kind of relationships and, and bonds are formed too. because of this. And uh, thank you so much for coming and, and sharing your story. Absolutely. It's for the good French press. It was decent. It actually <laughs> came um, from Humboldt County. My little brother Whoa. sent it to me for Christmas. Nice. It's called Good Strong Coffee. That's, That's what the how brew we like is called. It. That's yeah. how we like it. Well, thank you. All right. We'll sign Thanks off. All right. Absolutely.